Hey everyone, Happy New Year, and thanks for tuning into Anthology of Heroes, the podcast where we explore the stories of heroic figures who altered the course of history. Anthology of Heroes is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Elliot Gates, and this right here is the final part of our five-part series on Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's doomed invasion of Russia, beginning in 1941. If you've been listening since part one, we watched as the invasion shook and paralyzed the Red Army initially, before eventually Stalin and the Stavka retake control. We've seen the march on Moscow and the Caucasus come to nothing, and we've followed the Wehrmacht's 6th Army into another bone-chilling winter spent in Russia, this time in the industrial city of Stalingrad. The previous episode, and this one too, are all about Stalingrad, because it's in this city where the Wehrmacht will meet its end, and Hitler's dream of a thousand-year Reich will come crashing back down to Earth. If you haven't listened to the other episodes of this series, because you just want to hear about Stalingrad, that's no worries, but definitely do start on part 4 rather than this one, because we're already well and truly in the thick of it by now. Just like part 4, I'll be interspersing letters from German soldiers that were sent home from Stalingrad in between scenes. Just a quick note, because I'm currently travelling, this episode, like the last one, was recorded in different locations, so there'll be three times in the episode where the sound of my voice changes noticeably. I did my best to try and normalise it, but you can still tell, so sorry about that. We'll be back to normal for our next episode around late March or so. Anyway, we left the last episode just as Stalin and Zhukov began their long-awaited counterattack, Operation Uranus. As a warning, this episode mentions rape and sexual assault in passing reference. So, here we go. Hitler's Folly, Part 5, Christmas in the Cauldron. Pulling the tarpaulin off their artillery pieces for 80 minutes across the front line, Russian Katyusha missiles roared in fury. The oddly symphonic noise they made led to the Germans nicknaming them Stalin's organ. And as the symphony broke the early morning silence, it was clear that neither the Wehrmacht nor their allies were prepared. For the first time since the war began, and probably for one of the first times in his life, Stalin almost smiled as Zhukov read the initial reports of the advance. Puffing on his pipe cheerfully, he sensed that this would be decisive in every sense of the word. For the first few days, the sheer scale of the invasion was hidden as a thick, milky fog rolled in across the frontier. In his memoirs, German soldier Gunter K. Koshori describes the fog around this time, saying that it was so cloudy that they could actually hear Russian soldiers laughing and chatting ahead of them, but they couldn't see them. So hearing all these noises, Gunter's squadron killed the engine of their vehicle and just stood silent. The grinding of the tanks got closer and closer until, barely a few meters away from them, they stopped. Gunter held his breath as the Russians, clearly suspecting something, shot a yellow flare into the sky. But the fog was so thick it was barely visible. Hearing Russians talking, Gunter and his squadron waited, hearts pounding. Then, after what seemed like an eternity, the tanks slowly veered left and the sounds got quieter and more distant. As winter went on, snowdrifts began to form and the Wehrmacht found themselves spending more time digging their panzers out rather than driving them. Paulus, now so reliant on Hitler to guide him, did nothing. Communiques were coming in thick and fast from the Romanian divisions on the flanks, urgent calls for reinforcements and resupplies. But so preoccupied with taking Stalingrad, these concerns seemed distant and unimportant to him until they weren't. By the time Paulus appreciated the seriousness of the situation, the rout had already started. Germans and Romanians alike, cut off from HQ, ran in all directions into the blizzard. At first, the injured were evacuated on sleds, but soon the snow got thicker, they were left behind. Injured soldiers found themselves completely alone on the Russian steppe, as the blizzard peacefully lulled them into eternal sleep. For every Russian involved in the counterattack, even for new recruits, morale was through the roof. For two years, they'd endured the humiliation and degradation of invasion and of their people being killed and raped with impunity. Over that time, Soviet propaganda had drip-fed hope, telling them to imagine how sweet the day would be when they, they personally, liberated the motherland from the Hitlerites. And now that day had arrived. Many veterans remembered this counter-thrust as the greatest day of their lives, topping even their march on Berlin two years later. The zippy Russian T-34s advanced with such speed, the Red Army sometimes burst in on German headquarters that were still staffed. 
Those German staff officers that fled would have missed the foolhardy order of Adolf Hitler sent to all divisions, quote, Sixth Army to stand firm in spite of danger of temporary encirclement. Wehrmacht field hospitals, if you could even call them hospitals, overflowed with casualties. Lines of dying men trailed out into the hospital and off into the snow. The groans of the dying were heard long before anyone laid sight on any building. Men with leg or spinal injuries dragged themselves, sometimes miles, through the snow in hope of treatment. Amputations were mostly performed with no anaesthetic. Fully conscious, the patients had their limbs held down as an exhausted doctor hacked off an arm or leg with a bone saw. Like a horror movie, torrents of blood flowed from the tents into the crisp white snow. Fleeing German officers torched their precious fuel depots to keep them out of Russian hands, and bridges became the ultimate bottleneck, where, in some instances, German commandos blocked the crossing, refusing to allow retreat. On the 22nd of November, at 7pm, Paulus sent a message to the Führer bunker that began with, Army surrounded. He and his 290,000 men were on the cusp of being completely cut off. The Soviet ring was closing. The Red Army was just over 40 kilometers, 25 miles from their HQ. As news of their rescue reached them, Trukov's battered defenders roared to life, emerging from their caves and counter-attacking with everything they had. The German army was now being hit from both directions and isolated breakthroughs had already started. The Romanians were in pieces, but the 6th Army inside Stalingrad still had time for a fighting retreat before the ring closed. Paulus would have no doubt noticed the grim irony that he and his men may yet follow Napoleon's route retreating out of Russia. But even now, when it was so clear that the counteroffensive had failed, Hitler refused to even consider retreat. He ordered the defenders to take up defensive positions, the modern equivalent of yelling shield wall during ancient warfare. And with these new defensive postures, he coined a new term that would be a harbinger for the destruction of the Sixth Army. He ordered the Wehrmacht to create Fortress Stalingrad. Deluded and disconnected, the Führer likely babbled on about the magnificence of the heroic Aryan soldiers standing tall in the den of Bolshevism. Eagerly, he began planning airdrops into Fortress Stalingrad. Supplying an army of this size by air alone was a huge endeavor. There were almost 300,000 soldiers in Stalingrad, soldiers that were already living on starvation rations. Paulus calculated that if the Führer really did want to hold out, he'd need at least 700 tons of supply per day to be airdropped in. The Führer, on his own volition, cut that number to 500. And by the time it got to Hermann Göring, the head of the Luftwaffe, it had been whittled down to 350. They wouldn't even get close to any of these figures. Throughout the next few months, the Luftwaffe would manage about 73 tons of supplies per day. While the brave crusaders of Europe held the line against the evils of Bolshevism, the Führer announced, a relief army would be assembled. The army would swiftly cut through the paltry enemy forces, a corridor would form, and the Aryan heroes would be resupplied. Operation Winter Storm would be Germany's finest hour, he insisted. And after the army was saved, they would hit back even harder with Operation Thunderclap. Take a guess at who came up with these names, hey? His field marshals barely argued back. You almost get the feeling that they're just apathetic at this point. They now conclusively understood. Independent thought was not what Hitler wanted from them. Apart from worms like Joseph Goebbels, few men seem to really believe in the myth of Hitler anymore. Where before they'd seen a proud, youthful leader who had raised up their exhausted nation in a time of need, they now saw a deluded, aged egomaniac with a god complex. In wake of their input being disregarded, some members of Nazi high command pursued their own passions. Hermann Göring amassed a huge collection of stolen artwork from occupied territory, and Heinrich Himmler sent off men to look for Mjolnir, Thor's hammer, hoping that this mythical Aryan weapon could somehow turn the tide. Even officers began to openly mock Hitler, derogatively referring to him as Grofaz, a German acronym that meant, sarcastically, greatest commander of all time. But not Paulus. Hitler had picked him well. And even now, as his Führer refused to allow him to break out, Paulus's faith never waned. Boying the confidence of his men, he assured his soldiers, quote, Hold on, the Führer will get us out. And most still believed he would. 
The winter chill was growing increasingly bitter, but the idea of retreating blindly into the open steppe was worse. Like it or not, they were safer in Stalingrad, waiting for the Fuhrer's relief army. By the 7th of December, rations, already minimal, were cut by between one-third and one-half. Himmler's airdrops, which Hitler had banked everything on, were sporadic and scarce. Just getting the planes off the ground was a mission in itself. Just to get the engine started, ground crews needed to light a fire underneath. And once the planes made it to Stalingrad, often the Russian artillery was so intense they were forced to drop their cargo from the air. For the planes that did make it, the odd arrival of bits and pieces would have been almost comical if not for the loss of life they caused. In one instance, the precious crates were eagerly prized open by hungry hands, only to find the contents of the entire delivery were just pepper and majorum. In their bunkers, in their dugouts and in their caves, Wehrmacht soldiers gathered like cavemen, staring for hours at a crumpled photo of a wife or lover. To pass the time, they carved wooden frames from splinters and made a little nook in the earthen walls to hold the photo. One bunker was particularly popular for the troops, thanks to the talent of one officer who would hold down an old piano which he played beautifully. As the sounds of Russian artillery grew closer, soldiers sat silent, listening to the beautiful melodies of Bach, Mozart or Beethoven, transported, if only for a few minutes, to somewhere else. Flights out of the city became rarer and rarer. Between the blizzards, the freeze and the Russian artillery, the few landing strips the Wehrmacht held were out of action more often than not. The female nurses still left in the city were forced upon many of the last flights out. As the soldiers lined up to watch the women clamber aboard, it was only natural to feel envious, even jealous. But if Russian soldiers ever got their hands on German women, well, they'd be put through exactly what those German soldiers put Russian women through. With Christmas just around the corner, Kurt Ruber, a pastor, wanted to give the soldiers something to remind them of home and of God's grace, even as they languished in such a wretched place. On an old sheet with a charcoal pencil, he sketched what would come to be known as the Stalingrad Madonna. In it, the Virgin Mary sits knees to chest wearing an oversized shawl, cradling baby Jesus close to her chest. Around the edges of the picture are written, Light, Life, Love, Fortress Stalingrad, Christmas in the Cauldron, 1942. Ruba was slightly embarrassed as his decrepit bunker became a de facto chapel and many soldiers who entered wept upon seeing his drawing. With no hot water, lice, already a problem, ran rampant, as did the creatures that carried them. Driven indoors from the cold, the men slept surrounded by them. One soldier awoke to find a swarm of the vermin eating away at one of his frostbitten toes. Another noted that when a man died, a literal sea of lice could be observed leaving the body en masse and moving to a new host. Men took to using spatulas to try and scrape the little beasts off their beards and hair. In between the mice, the lice, the excrement, rotten food and corpses, typhus soon followed. The only thing keeping these men together, keeping them following orders, was the hope of the Fuhrer's relief army. Irrespective of their feelings towards Hitler, no one thought the Fuhrer would just leave the 6th Army to rot. Morality aside, from a military perspective, it was incredibly wasteful. The 6th Army was one of the last elite armies the Wehrmacht had left. Surely Hitler must be doing everything he could to get them out, if only for them to defend the home front. But Hitler had other ideas. Even a mind as warped as his was finally coming to terms that there was no longer any hope of victory. The relief army he'd promised had barely made headway through the Russian wall. Taking Stalingrad had always been about ego. Conquering the city of his rival's namesake was the ultimate prize, but if he couldn't have that, he'd settle for a glorious last stand. The Fuhrer imagined the rippling figures of his Aryan children standing atop a mangled pile of Russian corpses, machine gun in hand firing down to their last bullets before the subhuman Slavic horde overwhelmed them. This, he decided, was the ultimate ending. An ending every citizen could be proud of. An ending he could stomach. Dearest Father, the division has been trimmed down for the big battle, but the big battle won't take place. 
You will be surprised that I write to you and in the care of your office. But what I have to say in this letter can only be said among men. You will transmit it to mother in your own way. The word is out that we can write today. For one familiar with the situation, that means that we can do it just once more. You are a colonel, my dear father, and a member of the general staff, so you know what this means, and I won't go into explanations which might sound sentimental. This is the end. It will last perhaps another week, I think, then the game's up. I do not want to look for reasons which one could marshal for or against our situation. The reasons are altogether unimportant and pointless. But if I am to say anything about them, it is this. Do not look to us for some explanation of the situation, but to yourselves and to the man who is responsible for it. Be on guard so that a greater disaster does not overtake our country. The hell on the vulgar should be a warning to you. I beg you, don't brush off this experience. And now a remark about the present. Only 69 men are still in fighting condition. Balea is still alive and so is Hartlieb. Little Degen lost both his arms and will probably be in Germany soon. We still have two machine guns and 400 rounds of ammunition, one mortar and 10 shells. Besides that, only hunger and fatigue. Without waiting for orders, Berg broke out with 20 men. Better to know in three days how things will end than in three weeks. Can't blame him. And now to personal matters. You can be sure that everything will end decently. It is a little early at 30, I know. No sentiments. Handshake for Lydia and Helen. Kiss for mother. Be careful, old man. Think of her heart trouble. Kiss for Gerda. Regards to all the rest. Hand to helmet, father. First lieutenant respectfully gives notice of departure. With just two days until Christmas, the Wehrmacht soldiers had tried their best to make their miserable lives a little more festive, even if just for the day. One division slaughtered their last pack horse to make Christmas sausage. Another carved little Christmas trees from wooden splinters. Others still saved up the pittance of food they were allocated in hope of giving a final gift to a friend. Cigarettes, boots, picture frames, any intact articles of clothing were passed around. Christmas in Fortress Stalingrad was in full swing, complete with a sip or two from an officer's bottle of wine that he'd saved for the capture of the city. Stalin, though, was never one for festivities. Early in the morning, a Russian tank division had managed to punch right through the boundaries of Tatsinskaya Airfield, the 6th Army's lifeline. Under the cover of yet another blizzard, tanks advanced virtually unopposed to the edge of the runway and began taking pot shots at the precious Luftwaffe supply planes. Visibility was low, but there were so many targets the tanks fired blindly into the storms. It was pandemonium for the air marshals who would receive no warning that the enemy was so close to the base. As frantic messages warbled over the airways, planes took off left and right, crashing into each other and clogging the runway. Any craft that got airborne was ordered to make for their backup airbase, which was little more than a patch of tarmac in the snow. By the evening, the Russians had taken the vital airbase and destroyed about 10% of the total Luftwaffe's fleet. Stalin now had his foot on the last major blood vessel pumping life into Fortress Stalingrad. Christmas had been a sombre affair for the Germans, but for the Red Army, things were slowly improving. With the Volga now frozen solid, soldiers could cross with impunity, and many took advantage of the saunas that had been set up on the other side. Deloused and scrubbed clean, they returned in high spirits. On the note of spirits, General Chukov also took the opportunity to get out of Stalingrad for the day. Returning in the evening, steaming drunk, he stumbled across the river and fell through a thin section in the ice. The rock nearly sank to the bottom, but a comrade pulled him free at the last moment. Letters to Russian wives showed that soldiers knew the tide had well and truly turned. Darling, wrote one soldier, we are pushing the serpents back to where they came from. Our successful advance brings our next meeting closer. New Year's came and went, and though Paulus's diary entries show that he knew their fate was sealed, he tried his best to keep his troops motivated. The men were now so weak, so malnourished, that even if the order was given to evacuate, few divisions had the strength to do so. In the grips of starvation, soldiers dragged themselves from their hovels to hear Paulus read Hitler's New Year's speech to them. In it, he talked of glory and of how he was doing all he could to bring them home. He concluded with, quote, Your staunchness will come to the most glorious feat in the history of German arms. The men were relieved to hear that the Fuhrer had not forgotten them and that 
Any day now, panzers would burst through the lines with armfuls of ham, water, fresh clothes, medicine, and ammunition. With nothing but a prayer keeping them going, no one thought too deeply into what glorious feat Hitler was referring to. Generals who visited the horrific front lines couldn't believe the skinny cavemen they saw were once the proud men of the Wehrmacht Sixth Army. They told Hitler what they'd seen and begged him to see reason, get these people out while he still could. There was no honour in forcing these men to die so needlessly and cruelly. General Zeitler, in solidarity with the soldiers, reduced his own rations to match that of a frontline soldier and lost 26 pounds, 12 kilograms, in just two weeks. Hitler, disgusted at Zeitler's withered frame, ordered him to resume eating normally and assured Zeitler to show solidarity they would instead ban drinking champagne and brandy in the bunker. On the morning of January the 13th, 1943, Wienrich Baer nervously cleared her throat and combed back his dark hair. The 25-year-old officer stood in the parlour of the wolf's den, waiting for an audience with Adolf Hitler. Hours ago, he had been at Stalingrad. A logistics officer, Baer was responsible for the distribution of ammunition across the front. But that morning, he'd been handpicked for a special mission by Marshal Paulus himself. He was being sent to meet the Führer in person and obtain permission to allow Paulus and the 6th Army to surrender. So far, Hitler had refused to see reason. He'd ignored facts, figures, and logistics. But Paulus knew the dictator was prone to following his emotions. Paulus figured that the same facts coming from the mouth of a young, handsome staff officer who had lived through Stalingrad might be the chink in the Fuhrer's armor. Baer represented the next generation, the one that the Fuhrer always claimed to be building a world for. It also didn't hurt that he had a Knight's Cross medal for bravery and was visibly malnourished, but not to the point that would sicken Hitler and make him turn away. Taking off his belt and pistol, he made sure his medal was nice and high on his turtleneck as he was waved into a large meeting room where numerous generals and staff officers sat in gloomy silence. Standing over the table was Baer's supreme commander, his Führer, Adolf Hitler. Baer had met Hitler once before, many years ago in France. At that time, he'd been enraptured by the Führer. He thought the man a genius and his energy and dynamism kept him hanging on his every word. Now he looked aged and haggard. And before Bear could get a word in, the Führer began his lecture. Warmly, he welcomed him and acknowledged the problems faced in Stalingrad. But, as he demonstrated on his map, the Reich had many problems and Stalingrad was just one of them. Bear had been warned against this. The dictator's strategy when receiving bad news was to just filibuster until the messenger gave up. Patiently, Bear stood listening as the dictator motioned at various flags across the Stalingrad front. Each of the flags, the Führer said, represented a division, thousands of men. But Baer knew many of these flags were just down to single digits of men who could still hold a rifle. He felt the anger inside rising as Hitler spoke vaguely of the numerous SS divisions that would soon arrive to rescue them. Divisions that once again Baer knew were nowhere near the front. The Führer finished his lecture and with a smile moved to escort the young officer to the exit. But Baer didn't move. Hitler had his moment, now it was his turn. Just like Paulus told him to do, he told the Fuhrer simply that they were starving. The soldiers at Stalingrad had no food and little ammunition. When he pointed out that the airdrops had all but ceased, a representative from the Luftwaffe moved to cut him off, but Hitler waved him away. When he spoke about desertions, from behind Hitler's back, the head of the Wehrmacht waggled his finger at the young man, indicating that he better shut up now but Bear ploughed on. Finally, after upsetting almost every member in the room, he finished and knew straight away he had failed in his mission. Hitler immediately retorted with a well-oiled speech about the imminent arrival of the SS divisions. He counted that the 6th Army had been complaining about dwindling supplies in early December, but yet here they were holding out two months later. And he repeated over and over, Stalingrad must hold out. Bear left the map room dejected, only to find his pistol and belt stolen. Sensing his deep frustration, two staff officers approached him and quietly asked him if he'd like to join a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. 
For this to be discussed so openly shows just how far Faith had fallen in the disgraced dictator. Fearing for his safety, Bear said no. Later that afternoon, he found out that he was forbidden to fly back to Stalingrad. Hitler feared his defeatist attitude would not help Paulus' low mood. Instead, Hitler sent Paulus a transmission that read, Capitulation is impossible. The Sixth Army will do its historic duty at Stalingrad until the last man, in order to make possible the reconstruction of the Eastern Front. The time has come for me to send you greetings once more and to ask you to greet all the loved ones at home. The Russians have broken through everywhere. Our troops, weakened by long periods of hunger, engaged in the heaviest fighting since the beginning of this battle without a day's relief, and in a state of complete physical exhaustion have performed heroically. None of them surrenders. When bread, ammunition, gasoline and manpower give out, it is, God knows, no victory for the enemy to crush us. We are aware that we are the victims of serious mistakes in leadership. Also, the wearing down of Fortress Stalingrad will cause the most severe damage to Germany and her people. But in spite of it, we still believe in the happy resurrection of our nation. True-hearted men will see to that. We are Prussian staff officers and know what we have to do when the time comes. In thinking over the course of my life once more, I can look back on it with thankfulness. It has been beautiful. Very beautiful. It was like climbing a ladder, and even this last rung is beautiful, a crowning of it, I might almost say a harmonious completion. You must tell my parents that they should not be sad. They must remember me with happy hearts. No halo, please. I have never been an angel. Nor do I want to confront my God as one. I'll manage it as a soldier, with the free, proud soul of a cavalryman, as a hare. I'm not afraid of death. My faith gives me this beautiful independence of spirit. Be especially loving with my parents, and so help them get over the first grief. Put up a wooden cross for me in the park cemetery, as simple and as beautiful as uncle's. This is my last great wish. In my writing desk is a letter which I recorded my wishes during my last leave. So once more, I turn to all of you, dear ones. My thanks once more for everything, and hold your heads high. Keep on. I embrace all of you. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive, but what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found, and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. As Bear walked dejected from the Fuhrer bunker, he couldn't know that the time for rescue had already passed. The Stavka had just launched Operation Ring, the final envelopment of Fortress Stalingrad. The Red Army had now fully encircled the city. All they needed to do was close the ring. The skeleton soldiers from the Legion of the Damned fought back with the last of their strength. Just three days into the operation, Russian casualty figures topped 26,000 dead. Now that victory was assured, Zhukov and others resorted to the same human wave attacks that they'd used at the commencement of the invasion. Just like in the past, the commanders couldn't give a damn about how many men died meeting the objective. When the Red Army came across their defeated foes, even for veteran soldiers, it was a shocking sight. Rake-thin men dressed in rags, sallowed faces covered in bites and sores, with blackened hands soaked in yellow anti-frostbite ointment. Like rats on a sinking ship, 
Wehrmacht soldiers with enough strength to walk made for the Potomnik airfield, one of the last functioning airstrips the 6th Army still held. Soldiers rushed onto the runway, trying to jump onto landing planes to get first dibs at any food on board. Wounded soldiers scheduled for evacuation were forced aside as men clambered to escape. As the crowd surged forward, airport staff fired warning shots in the air to try and re-establish order. One wounded soldier noted, quote, Here was the greatest misery that I have ever seen in my whole life. An endless wailing of wounded and dying men, most of them received nothing to eat for days. No more food was given to the wounded, supplies were reserved for fighting troops. As the Russian divisions began to close in on Potomnik, many soldiers and officers rechecked their bearings. They were supposed to be heading towards an airfield, but from the distance they saw a sizable town. It was only when they got closer they realized this town was really just hundreds of burnt out and abandoned vehicles that ringed the airfield. An enormous junkyard, the husks of German personnel carriers, tanks and planes had been left once the fuel ran out. The area had become a dumping ground for discarded equipment and discarded people. Inside were the bodies of countless injured troops who, like their vehicles, had been abandoned in the rush to the airfield. Many were missing limbs and with no bandages available had been patched up with paper. If the Russians felt any pity for these men, it quickly evaporated when they found the Russian prisoners left behind. Virtually all were dead and those that weren't were so far gone that when given a bit of sausage or bread, their bodies couldn't process it and they died from shock. The last few planes to make it out of Potomnik were ordered to reroute to a new airfield that had not even been set up. Gumrak, eight miles to the east, was still having the radio beacons powered on as planes appeared in the sky and jerked down onto the patchy runway. The fall of Potomnik finally seemed to be the straw that had broken the camel's back. The scales had now fallen from the eyes of even the most zealous Hitlerites. Hitler wasn't coming to save them. They were being left here to die. The Stalingrad pocket had now been torn in two, with Paulus on one side and another commander holding the other. General Hube, a prominent Wehrmacht officer, escaped the cauldron on one of the last planes out of Gumrak. Paulus prepared to go down with the ship. Perhaps on the same plane as Hube, Paulus sent his final letter to his wife along with his medals and wedding ring. What was the thought running through his mind at this point? He had served the Fuhrer loyally, he'd obeyed every order, every instruction, no matter how difficult they were, and what had it got him? An icy bunker in Stalingrad, a city that, up until his operation began, he had not even heard of. A sad-looking swastika, hanging limply in front of a bombed-out department store, was the last vestige of Nazi power in Stalingrad as all inside counted down their final days. In a deep depression, Paulus was approached by a major who begged of him advice, asking what he should do as they now ran out of reserves. Paulus, with a vacant expression on his face, replied, quote, Dead men are no longer interested in military history. As the last few bullets of the 6th Army were fired in respect to the Fuhrer's orders, Hitler had not only given up on the men, but had moved on to a new plan, on the last flights leaving Gumrak, Hitler ordered that one man from each division should be saved so he could rebuild the famous 6th Army from the ground up. Historian Antony Beaver coined this the 6th Army's Noah's Ark. To initiate this plan while he was refusing to let the very same men surrender is perhaps one of the coldest, cruelest decisions he'd made up to this point. It shows that Hitler had as little regard for Nazi life as he did for the enemy's life. On January the 30th, 1943, exactly 20 years since the Nazis took power, Joseph Goebbels gave a speech to the German public. In a Berlin auditorium decked out with swastikas, the German public tuned in for the latest news of the war. Housewives across the right cranked the volume knob on their radio hoping for news of their brothers or sons. But Goebbels would disappoint them, mentioning Stalingrad just once in a list of the many fronts the Wehrmacht were now stretched across. No amount of party rhetoric could hide his concern as he spoke about the need for total war. The time for sacrifice, he said, was coming, of 14-hour workdays and of food rationing. Up until this point, German citizens had been shielded from the horrors of war 
cream, silk, chocolate and tin. In Britain these were scarce, but Hitler had always wanted to keep the German public content. But now he had no choice, there was no more surplus. For them to have any hope in the war, the whole economy needed to be reorientated for the war effort. The citizens of the Reich were soon to experience the horrors of war just as Russian citizens had. As the nasally voice of Goebbels crackled through the frigid barracks of Stalingrad, the wounded soldiers groaned as if hearing his voice was somehow worsening their injuries. Turn it off, men yelled as Goebbels continued, quote, The epic struggle of our soldiers on the Volga should be a reminder for everyone to do their best for the struggle and the freedom of Germany and of the future of our people, and at the same time, in the broader sense, for the preservation of our whole continent. As the protests and yells got louder, officers scrambled to turn off the radio. One man said the speech was like hearing his own funeral oration. The very next day, Marshal Paulus was promoted to Field Marshal. Paulus was no fool and immediately knew what the promotion meant. A Nazi Field Marshal had never been taken prisoner and Hitler didn't expect that to change now. The destruction of the 6th Army was near and the Fuhrer wanted to make sure he got the symbolic end that he desired. Paulus was to kill himself. Field Marshal Paulus, dressed in a shabby Yushanka Russian hat, called the final staff meeting with his generals, and for the first time in his life, voiced defiance at Hitler's order, quote, I have no intention of shooting myself for this bohemian corporal. One of his last orders was to forbid German soldiers from standing still above trenches and waiting for enemies to shoot them. Enough people had died, this farce had to come to an end. Within a few hours, the Russians were at his door. Stalin had been in a mad panic to ensure Paulus was caught, but he didn't need to worry. The marshal wasn't going anywhere. Russian translators told him the city had fallen and that he was now their prisoner. Neither Paulus nor his staff objected. Handing over their pistols, they followed the Red Army soldiers out of the bunker, where a photographer was waiting. Eyes cast downwards, thin with a patchy beard, the twitchy Field Marshal Frederick Paulus was led outside, bundled into a staff car and whisked away. Stalin had his prize. The siege of Stalingrad came to an end in early February 1942. After Paulus's capture, a few of the most dedicated soldiers fought to the last bullet just as Hitler ordered, but by the second, organized resistance had all but stopped. The bloodiest battle in world history had lasted a little over five months and claimed the lives of somewhere between one and two million men, women, and children. Once the prisoners were counted, even the Red Army was stunned to see just how many soldiers they'd captured. Stalin was exuberant to learn he'd just bagged himself 91,000 prisoners, including 11 generals. Adolf Hitler was livid. But not at the fall of the city, he expected that. He was beyond words with anger and fury. He couldn't understand why Paulus had not killed himself. To Hitler, Paulus was the symbol of the 6th Army, and allowing himself to be captured had completely ruined his idea of a glorious last stand. I mean this seriously, until his dying day, he would curse Paulus, in a fury but more astounded that he had chosen not to fall on his sword. In a meeting with his generals that took place a few days after the fall of the city, Hitler anguishes that he should have picked up these defects in Paulus's character, quote, He asked what should he do now? How can he even ask such a thing? So in the future, whenever a fortification is besieged and the commanding officer receives a demand to surrender, he's going to ask first, what shall I do now? Hitler continues, How easy it is to do such a thing. The pistol, that's quite easy. What kind of cowardice it must be to even flinch from that. Ha! Huh. Better to let yourself be buried alive, and in such a situation where he knows full well that his death is the requirement for holding the next pocket, because if he gives an example like that, you can't expect the men to continue fighting. As the dictator ranted, one of his generals noticed how deranged and sick the Fuhrer now looked. Quote, his left hand trembled, his back was bent, his gaze was fixed, his eyes protruded, but lacked their former luster, his cheeks were flecked with red. Back in Stalingrad, the last few Wehrmacht soldiers were escorted out of their subterranean caves into the chilly February air. So used to death, fire, noise, and decay, everything was now still. 
For the men that had lived through the five hellish months of the siege, the quietness of the city and the calm of the Volga must have seemed almost surreal. One Russian soldier yelled to a group of prisoners, motioning to the ruins of the city, he said to them, quote, You see this? This is what Berlin will look like. And he'd be right. The tide had finally turned. Stalingrad, the Russian campaign in general, had been one front too many, and the Reich was collapsing like a house of cards. By the end of 1943, the Red Army would push the Wehrmacht back to the Dnieper River, and the Allies would occupy Italy. By 1945, they would be in Germany. With enough trauma for ten lifetimes, there was little doubt about how German civilians would be treated by the Red Army, as one marching song went, quote, Soon the war will end. Soon Hitler will be kaput we vow. Soon our temporary wives will be bellowing like a cow. Oh you pigeon-toed Hitler, you'll surely pay for your sin. In what world the girls will be asking, who made off with all our men. As the end drew closer, an increasingly delusional Hitler would dream up counterattack one after the other. Alone in his concrete bunker, manic and giddy, he'd spend hours shifting flags and pieces around maps of Europe, while his generals, almost out of pity, let him live in his fantasy world. With each punch, the Wehrmacht grew weaker and weaker, eventually resorting to conscripting children and old men to fill their ranks. On the 30th of April 1945, Hitler and his wife of 40 hours, Eva Braun, sat down for lunch in their bunker. Around the table was the remainder of their staff, including Joseph Goebbels. When the meal ended, Hitler and Eva said goodbye to their staff members. With the Berlin defenders having less than 24 hours of ammunition remaining, it was the end of the line. After about an hour and a half, staff heard a single gunshot and entering Hitler's bedroom, they found the lifeless body of the dictator and his wife. Hitler had shot himself in the temple with a Walther PPK, and Eva had taken a cyanide capsule. With Hitler dead, Berlin was ready to surrender. Georgi Zukov was in prime position to be the general that would accept the surrender of the city, but Stalin, whose paranoia had now resurfaced, wouldn't allow it. Fearing Zukov's popularity could eclipse his own, he permitted another Red Army general to gain the ultimate glory in his stead. Once the war was over, Zhukov remained an important part of the Soviet apparatus before he would, again, fall foul of Stalin and his successors. After a few stints in various government positions, he retired from politics for good in 1957 to fish and write his memoirs. Following a decade of declining health, Georgi Zhukov died of a stroke in 1977. Vasily Chuikov, the stone of Stalingrad, fought loyally until the end of the war, pushing the Eastern Front all the way back to Berlin. Unlike Zhukov, he was permitted to be present when the city finally surrendered. After the war, he would continue serving in the Soviet military for many years. He was heavily involved in the planning behind Russia's most iconic statue. The Motherland Calls was the name given to the 85-meter statue constructed in the memory of the heroes who fought in Stalingrad. Built atop the heavily contested Tata burial ground within the city, at the time of the construction the statue was the tallest in the world. A proud looking woman, symbolizing Mother Russia, beckons the citizens of the Soviet Union to her aid, with her sword raised and her dress billowing in the wind. Always dancing with death, the stone would finally succumb to sepsis from an old war wound and die in 1982. He was buried in Stalingrad, atop the burial mound that he'd fought so hard for where his grave is still regularly visited today. Field Marshal Friedrich Paulus was kept as a prisoner of the Soviets for eight years. By the time he was released in 1953, his wife, who had not seen him since 1942, had passed away. Once he returned to a now-divided Germany, he announced he'd renounced most of his Nazi worldviews. At a conference in Berlin, Paulus answered a question that no doubt many German citizens had been pondering since the war ended. Quote, there are still many people today who wonder how Germany, which no doubt possessed a highly trained army, could be defeated in two wars. The question cannot be answered in military terms. The governments responsible for this have both put their armed forces in front of insoluble problems. Even the best army is doomed to fail when it is required to perform impossible tasks. That is, when it is ordered to campaign against the national existence of other peoples. 
Paulus would spend his remaining years working as a kind of military historian, preaching his belief that the peoples of Europe should mend the rifts that had been torn apart by Nazi Germany. This, he proclaimed, was the only way for Europe to avoid being dominated by the growing power of the United States. Friedrich Paulus died in 1957 and was buried next to his wife in Dresden, East Germany. Kurt Ruber, the pastor who sketched the Stalingrad Madonna, would die in a POW camp in mid-1944. His original sketch made it back to Berlin where it is still visited to this day. Copies of it can be found in churches in the UK, Germany and Russia as a symbol of reconciliation between the three nations. Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's most zealous follower, would survive the war, ending up as one of the highest ranking Nazis rounded up for the famous Nuremberg trials. His prosecution was eagerly watched by a nation that had grown used to his oily voice, spewing hate and lies weekly across the airways for years on end. Goebbels, like many others of Hitler's cabinet, proved slippery, but with such troves of evidence against him, it was only a matter of time until prosecutors made some of them stick. Goebbels was sentenced to death, but took his own life the day before the sentence was to be carried out. Joseph Stalin's intense paranoia would see him firmly retain the reins of power until he died of a stroke in 1953. Stalin's legacy is much less black and white than Hitler's. While Germans today rightfully regard Adolf Hitler as a monster, in Russia Joseph Stalin certainly has his admirers. When I visited Moscow a few years back, I saw an old babushka tearfully kneeling at his grave above a few long-stemmed roses. Likewise, when I travelled to Transnistria, a little Russian exclave on the side of Moldova, I was shocked to see portraits of Stalin right next to Putin in many shops and businesses. It's not within the scope of this episode to try and summarise Stalin's legacy, but there's a quote that's usually attributed to Churchill, although I'm not sure he actually said it, that might help us to understand the thought process of Stalin's admirers. Quote, Stalin took Russia with horse and plough and left it with atomic bombs. It's May the 2nd, 1945, and Hitler's capital, Berlin, lies in ruins. The destroyed streets are still quiet and sad. Residents pick through the pieces of the houses or businesses. In the bombed-out ruins of the Reichstag building, Russian troops sort through the mountains of paperwork until one stack catches their eye. Removing the classified packaging wrap, they find letters, hundreds of them. The letters were from many different hands, but all came from one destination, Stalingrad. Neatly bound and ordered were the last words ever penned by the soldiers of the 6th Army of the German Wehrmacht. Within these letters to their wives, sons, parents or friends, the troops of the 6th Army penned their final, most enduring thoughts. Over the course of this episode, you've heard these letters and learnt what these men reflected on their last days or hours on earth. You heard that some went into darkness full of anger and fury, but the majority reminisced and thought introspectively about what their life had been. The saddest part of all this is that none of these letters reached the person they were destined for. Filled with dangerous anti-Nazi rhetoric and sentimentality not appropriate for Aryan men, the letters were collected, personal information was stripped out, and the overall tone of the letter was classified to gauge the attitudes of soldiers toward Nazi leadership. Reading these letters made me reflect on how easy it is to get swept away with the pace of life, and how some of the little moments, a road trip with your friends or a family dinner, events we barely noticed at the time could well be the ones that stick with you. Over the last four episodes we followed Hitler's 1941 invasion of the USSR. The Great Patriotic War, as it's called in Russia, remains one of the most important events in Russian history, and the Siege of Stalingrad, now renamed Volgograd, was the climax of that event. A time when military doctrine and superior technology smashed against raw grit and stubborn resistance. In this series I've tried to summarise what's a very complex topic, and for the sake of flow I've omitted a lot of detail and some very colourful characters I would have liked to work in. YouTube channels, books, podcasts, even people's careers have been dedicated to understanding the intricacies of this invasion. Needless to say, this series is just meant to be an overview. 
If you'd like to learn more, I'd point you in the direction of Anthony Beaver's fantastic book, Stalingrad, which has been my go-to for this episode. If you like to listen rather than read, check out the podcast The Battle of Stalingrad by Des Latham, which is a blow-by-blow account of the battle. And if you're more visual and really want to see the messy frontline waxing and waning day by day, check out the YouTube channel TIK History. I really appreciate this is a very sensitive and comparatively recent topic compared to what we usually cover. And if you've listened through these four episodes and noticed I made some mistakes, please do let me know and if required, I'll add the correction on our website. I hope you've enjoyed our very first series for season six. And if you have, it would be very appreciated if you could leave me a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Likewise, hey, share the podcast with your friends if they're needing something to listen to while they wait for the next hardcore history to drop. This episode, like all others, is dedicated to our amazing patrons and an extra shout out to our Justinian tier members who are Angus, Claudia, John, Seth, and Tom. If you'd like to join them in supporting the show for just a couple of bucks a month, please follow the link to our website. It's in the show notes. This will be the last episode before our extended break for season six. For more information on that, check out our season five wrap-up episode. I really hope you've had a wonderful holiday period and I'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.